Brother Dwight asked if we'd sing a little bit, so uh, we're going to sing two songs this morning. Do 
Like I said, my, my singing is, is that a 22? Because I do this, I guess. Sorry. I get good at this, I apologize. Yes. Okay, sorry. Um, that we value it right here. Um, we value it in our homes and schools, but that it comes back here as collective, as we, we have the, the generations singing together. It's great to see Grandma and Grandpa singing with little Johnny. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. And we see that happening here. Now, I think if we're going to really encourage congregational singing, we do have to have a solid um, understanding, conviction for what we do. And I used to maybe not be as, feel so strongly about our a cappella singing um, as I do now. There's a book that I'm going to reference a few times. Uh, I'm going to show it to you. Um, it's called Old Light on New Worship. I would highly recommend this book. This is written from a Presbyterian perspective. He's in the New England States. It's a fairly new book. He does an amazing job at laying out a good biblical foundation for a cappella singing. I'm going to touch on a few of those things this morning, um, but he goes much deeper. It's just amazing that from a Protestant perspective. So in his church... It's all a cappella. I'm not talking about instruments outside of church. We're talking about the church service. And he, he really lays out a very good discussion about this. Is, is what we do a biblical form of worship, or is it just one that works well for us and it's just been our culture? Or is it more than that? Is there a reason why we worship uh, this way in our circles? Well, let's think about some things. In the, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament... Um, instruments were very strictly ordered by God himself in the tabernacle and temple worship. If you read Exodus and Leviticus and the, the details that God put into place about everything that happened, it's just amazing. He regulated how he was worshipped very much in detail. And they did it exactly the way he said. God regulated the specific instruments to be used. 
The trumpet was used in the tabernacle. The trumpet and the instruments of David were used in the temple. Now, what's fascinating about the instruments of David is that they were established during the reign of David. And if you go to Nehemiah, I'm not going to take the time, but Nehemiah chapter 12, it references again, Nehemiah brings back the, the temple worship and he brings back the instruments of David. What's fascinating about that is there was almost 600 years between the instruments of David and Nehemiah. And he was still, they were still using the exact same thing that had been given by God 600 years prior. The United States hasn't even been around 300 years. Think about the things we've lost or whatever in 300 years. Double that. And yet they were still, the children of Israel were still very much using exactly what God had ordained. We move to the time of Christ, the apostolic church. Um, The local synagogue was the weekly meeting place for the Jews. The Jews used instruments only at Jerusalem, only at the temple, not in their synagogue. In their local worship, it was all a cappella. And so Apostle Paul and Jesus stepped right into that. And it makes sense that they would have readily walked into continuing to do that, singing a cappella in the synagogues. The sacrificial and ceremonial worship was not part of the synagogue, only the temple. When they met, they, didn't, they weren't sacrificing animals at the synagogue. They were just meeting to talk and relate and pray, etc., The worship of Christ in the apostolic church, the apostles, was patterned after uh, the synagogue worship. And so the thought process is God commanded the use of very specific things that the children of Israel followed. Um, he doesn't command us to use instruments in the, uh, in the New Testament. And so we aren't necessarily given this license to, to um, simply worship as we want. It's this principle of, of a regulated worship, that God regulated how he was worshiped with the children of Israel, and that he does the same for us today. In Apostle Paul's writings, he never mentioned the instruments. Um, you would think that he addressed tongues and he addressed all kinds of things. You would think that if instruments had been used in their worship services, that he would have addressed their use in some way, but it's never mentioned. Neither is there a gift mentioned about playing an instrument. There's gifts of teaching and preaching and, and so on and so forth, but not playing music. There was that, and often we tend to look at someone who can play an instrument well as, as kind of a gift, but that was never mentioned. And so John there, the, the writer of that book, just goes on to build a foundation for acapella worship today. Now, we move to the early church. This is fascinating what some of these men said. The use of singing with instrumental music was not received in the Christian churches as it was among the Jews in their infant state, but only the use of plain song or a cappella singing. This is Justin Martyr uh, shortly after Christ. Musical organs pertain to the Jewish ceremonies and agree no more to us than circumcision. It's pretty strong stuff. No, we don't want anything to do with those instruments. On the Lord's Day, all the instruments of music are to be silent. That's the Council of Carthage, which is probably about 200 years later. Another bishop, now again, now now we're stepping further from Christ, but still part of the early church. He said, it was only permitted to the Jews as sacrifice was for the heaviness and grossness of their souls. God condescended to their weakness because they were later drawn off from idols. But now instead of organs, we may use our bodies to praise him with all. I I actually better back up. This Constantinople, this may be more, I'm not sure exactly where it was on on other things uh, in that time frame. But it's just interesting that he, they're making this comparison. They're connecting the instruments to the sacrificial system and saying, no, we're, we're beyond that now. God calls us to worshiping him from the heart, using our bodies instead of organs. If we move to the Reformation, 
um, John Wycliffe said, um, a re- this is a relapse into Judaism which seeks after science and a departure from the spiritual nature of Christianity. We don't need this. John Huss and his followers reformed worship by forbidding the use of musical instruments and returned to simplicity with unison congregational singing. Maybe that's a bit what the pilgrims were trying to do. Um, unison singing together. Menno Simons believed that what is not expressly commanded in the New Testament should not be permitted in Christian worship. John Calvin, which we don't agree with him in a lot of things, but he was very influential, and he was vehemently opposed to musical instruments. He hated them. He had some strong things to say about the use of instruments inside the church for Christian worship. So we have a lot of historical evidence and historical uh, application of what we do. I don't think we have to be ashamed of our a cappella singing in our services as an appropriate form of worship. So I want to throw a couple dates here at you. Christ, zero. And I, get, I tell my students every now and then, I just love the fact that you can be the biggest atheist in the world, but you have to reckon with the fact that time centers on Jesus Christ, period. Right there he is, right in the middle of everything, and you cannot ignore that fact, whether you believe him or not. Anyhow, I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, the Apostolic Church, we have the early church, uh, we have the Reformation, we then, of course, have the Anabaptists and so on, and then we move into our modern times. And I want you to notice the two places where a musical instrument in church was at its peak, right there. Right before the Reformation, right before Martin Luther, before John Calvin, the, the liturgical worship of the church without the Spirit was at its peak, and instruments was a part of that. The Reformers come along and say, we want, we're, we're, we want to live by faith. We eliminate all of this. And so there was a major cutting off of instruments in worship. We want to go back to the way God wants us to worship was the logic. What are we at today? Well, that's where we are. At a higher peak is this, the contemporary worship in our culture where instrumentation, etc., is a very dominating part of the worship service. I'm not judging the people, okay? Please, that's not what I'm saying. Again, we're we're talking about application, what's what's happening, what, uh, what we can learn from this. I'm not making judgment calls on the salvation of people's souls with this discussion. Are we ever going to have a cutting off like we did here? I don't know. I don't know. But in our circles, I think we have a good, solid foundation from the Scriptures, from uh, the early church, from the apostles, from the reformers, of doing what we do. And if you believe strongly in something, that's a major help in hanging on to it and encouraging it. The Old Testament... Temple and worship and all of its outward ceremonies and rituals has been abolished. We look to Jesus Christ and his apostles for the worship of the church with no command, example, or any indication whatsoever from the Lord Jesus that he desires musical instruments in his church. We have no authority for their use. That's a a fairly strong statement again, but something for us to think about. If we move to the New Testament, the question then is, what shall we sing? We go to Ephesians, talks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Three distinct Um, parts or types, I guess you could say. Uh, You're going to run into different definitions of this, but psalms are scripture texts set to good music. The children of Israel did this a lot. The the psalms of David were put to music and that was part of their worship. Scripture text, taking the Bible and putting it directly to music. Hymns are songs about God and who He is, His attributes. And finally, we have the spiritual songs, um, perhaps what we would call more of the gospel songs, Songs of testimony of what God has done for me. And the scripture would indicate that we need all three of them. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, 
How do we, how do we think about that? I want to um, take you off a little bit here uh, before I come back to that thought. Um, a quote that I, I, I really find foundational. Uh, this is from Confucius, who was a Chinese man before Jesus. And by the way, answer me a question if you can. Sometimes ponder this. Where was salvation for people before Jesus, between the children of Israel and Jesus? Was there any chance for anybody? If we go to the Old Testament, you find men like Noah and Abraham who were, it was their faith and it was their righteousness. But what about people that tried to live right before Jesus? Was there no hope for them? I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Anybody could be saved. Okay. But we say now it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, so where, where were these people? Or how does this all work? Anyways, this is a quote from Confucius, who was a Chinese philosopher, and it really works. What I hear, I forget. So when we ministers preach, um, we can bank on you forgetting about 90% of what we preach. That's, that's about what it is. Do we give up? I guess not, but we keep trying. Uh, same with your children, probably. What I see, I remember. It impacts us because you're hearing and seeing. You know what the next one is? What I do, I understand. And when it comes to singing, this is so true. When you enter into being able to sing and you're instructed enough that you can sit down and you can sing with your family, you can sing with your church, you can sing with your youth group, you can go Christmas caroling. When you do it, it will impact you in a way that simply listening to it cannot do. You begin to understand it. And Apostle Paul says, sing with understanding. What I hear, I forget. What I see, I remember. What I do, I understand. Now, what is the purpose then of good music? What is the purpose of, of sacred music? And I'm going to, we're going to take the scriptures and use the amount of times the scriptures relate to the different types of music, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and kind of try to categorize them in that order. And we see, first of all, that praising and glorifying God directly, where we're singing about Him, singing about who He is, um, his attributes, etc., is the very first, uh, that's the prominent um, focus. And this is where most of our hymns would reside. Those old, deep hymns, those great texts singing about God. Secondly, we're to, from the, uh, from the New Testament, we're to teach, admonish, and encourage one another, Colossians and Ephesians and so on. So you're going to find a, um, an element of hymns there, as well as maybe some of the, the Psalms where we're singing Actual text of the Bible, obviously that's instructive. Scripture is given, all Scripture is given for the inspiration and for teaching and so on. And so when we sing direct biblical words, we're teaching and admonishing one another, encouraging one another. Thirdly, it's to unify believers. We already mentioned those verses. We didn't turn to Romans, but it talks about being of one mind. Okay, And so music helps bring us together to be of one mind. And lastly, is to evangelize. Now, if you ask any mainline Christian group, what's their f- goal? What are they going to tell you? Number one or number four? Most of them will say number four. The focus is here. Because that is the focus, we've generated into all the smatterings we have inside of Christian music because if the focal point is reaching people, I'm going to do everything possible, even if it means singing Christian rock music, to reach them. I'll take anything, any tool I can get if we start down here. If we start up here, it changes the perspective. I'm singing to a holy, just, merciful God, and it matters what I sing and how I sing. That focus really changes things. 
Now, I want you to understand, if one and two are done, three and four will follow. It doesn't mean this never happens. That's not what I'm saying. But the focus of our singing in our circles and our schools needs to be these two. These will follow after. Because there's power there. Do you know that singing is the only ordinance of the church of Jesus Christ, if you want to call it ordinance, part of our worship that goes to heaven? Do you know that? We won't need the Bible anymore. We will be in the presence of the Word. Uh, we don't need to be praying anymore. We're right there. We can talk to Him. The only thing we do right here that goes with us, as it were, is music. Because we are going to sing. And that's going to be fantastic. But I find that pretty interesting. On a more practical level, we're going to spend some time thinking about us. And here's a question that uh, I get asked sometimes or have in the past and debated. Is good singing hereditary? Is it in the genes? Well, let me show you something. I know some good singing parents that have poor singing children. I know some poor singing parents that have poor singing children. And now, this is no judgment call on anybody here, okay? I'm talking about the ability to, to make a sound and match and sing, okay? This is not a judgment call whatsoever. Poor singing parents that have good singing children, and I know good singing parents that have good singing children. Now, if all four of those happen, there's no way this is in the genes. It can't be. The two bold ones are the most common. Why? Not because of genes, because of environment. If I never sing with my children, my children will probably never sing. It's that simple. What we do, though, is people look at, at, a, at a, some singers of a family that sings well and say, oh, man, they are just so blessed. They got such good singers. Man, that's so nice. No, that's not what happened. That was worked on. There was energy put into that. There was time put into that. They took time to do that. And so you created a space, you created an environment for your children to sing. And we can do that at home. We can do that at church. And we definitely can do that at school. At school, you, you know, you get some parents that, depending where they came from, they don't know how to sing. I think when their children come to school, it is our duty, imperative, to make sure that their children can. Uh, in first grade, I'll get to that. We'll get to the schools. How do we encourage good singing? Um, in our homes, first of all, you have to sing. You can't, you're never going to learn to read if you don't read. You're never going to learn to sing if you don't sing. I, I there's no other way around that. And that has nothing to do with genes, again. That has to do with environment and taking the time. Listen to recordings of good singing. Now, not all the time. There's a time to be still and know that I am God. There's a time to be quiet. And, uh, yeah, sometimes that needs, whether it's good music or not, it's time to just sit and be still. But when you listen to recordings, listen to good stuff. Um, your children, like I mentioned last night, will emulate what they hear. I can guarantee you that. So if you listen to whatever, they're going to sound like that and bring that with them or take that with them. Is there a posture to singing? Um, is there a posture to praying? Is there a physical posture to pray? Do you teach your children to do something when you pray? What do we do here when we pray? Often we stand up or we kneel 
we close our eyes. Perhaps we teach our children, bow your head. You teach your children maybe to fold their hands. Do we need to do that to pray? No, but we recognize there's a physical element to time of prayer. That's good. Is there a posture to singing? If your song leader stands up and says, turn to 516, uh, does he see you sit up straight? Pay attention? You ready to sing? Or doesn't it make, make any difference? I think there's a posture. I like to see someone who sits up straight, uh, gets that songbook up. Uh, if the songbook's down here and you're down in your stomach, you can't see the song leader. So he don't do much good for you. He doesn't do much for you. You've got to be up here somewhere so you at least see him beating time out of your peripheral vision. The songbook has to be up here somewhere, not down in your belly. Sit up straight and pay attention. This is important, just like prayer. It's part of our worship. So I think there's a posture to singing. And you, very quickly, you can tell someone who likes to sing, who cares about it, versus those that don't. If you step inside a building and uh, you're observing, it's very obvious. Oh, yeah, that person enjoys singing. He, he's paying attention. He's, he's in a position ready to sing. So how do we encourage it? You've got to sing um, and listen to uh, recordings of good singing. And I knew of a family where the husband discouraged his wife from singing with his children because she wasn't a very good singer. No, no, sing. And his children would reflect that. They, they don't, aren't really into singing. And that's some of it. So just sing. It doesn't matter if you're always on key or not. Sing. Make that a part of your home culture so that they're interested and it perks their interest. How do we encourage singing in our schools? Um, this applies to homeschooling as well. Teach it when they're little. Teach it when they're little. Uh, one of my goals for my first graders, I don't teach my first graders, but making sure that they can match pitch. That is my biggest concern inside of first grade. So usually we have two programs. We have a big Christmas program and a big spring program. We usually kind of let them see if they find their way till Christmas. If they don't, and they're still monotone at Christmas, kind of messing things up or whatever, you know how that goes. From Christmas to spring to May, we, we work really hard to be able to help them match pitch. We don't teach them music theory. Just get them to match pitch. That is a gift you will give them that they will take with them the rest of their lives. We had a girl several years ago who was as serious as a day as long about music, but couldn't match pitch. And I think it took about two years. But now she's fine. And you, you feel like we were able, we were part in giving her something that she'll take with her that she wouldn't have had otherwise. That applies every time they come to church. It applies when they raise their own family. Teach it young. Make it part of your rudimentary educational program. Don't say we'll do it Friday if we have time because you know what happens when we get to Friday? We don't have time and it doesn't get done. Make it part of what you do every week. It's scheduled in here. Um, don't neglect it. It's very easy to push it off. Um, teach them to understand music. Children love to sing. If you get excited about it, invariably they will as well. Teach them to look at a song, and um, we're going we're gonna to try to sing this song this way. We're going to sing it fast. We're going to sing it slow. We're going to sing it loud here. We're going to sing it soft here. We're going to take a big break here. Whatever. Ways of engaging them is huge because they love it. So if I'm directing, there's a 60-some students, and it, it's fun to stand in front of a big school like that where they enjoy singing. And, and when, if I say, let's do this, you know who responds the best? 
those little first and second graders. They're ready to do whatever you tell them to do. It's great. And if you can build on that and get excited about it, it's, it makes a world of difference. But it's up to me, it's up to the song leaders, it's up to you teachers to be enthusiastic and to help them understand what this song is all about and how we can sing it in a way that, put it in a good vehicle, give, give a blessing to that text. How about here at church? Um, parents, be involved. Even if you're not sure about music, even if you're not a really good singer, please be engaged in what's happening. I've just seen, it's so sad when you go somewhere and dad's sitting here and little Johnny's sitting in the crook of his arm and dad's not even singing. And, and look, maybe he's looking around or he's whatever. And little Johnny's just sitting there doing the same thing. And then if you happen to be singing kind of loud behind him, he kind of gives you dirty eyeballs, you know. Well, What's going on there? Father is teaching son that re this really doesn't matter a whole lot. So sing. Be involved. Be involved. Have some special weekend singings. You've got a new songbook. There's a thousand some songs in that book. That's wonderful. I bet you know half of them. Maybe. Ah, maybe. Boy, maybe. I doubt. Actually, I doubt it. You've got a lot of opportunity to learn so much good music. And I don't, I'm not saying I do either. There's so much good music in that songbook. But years ago, I had an aunt, who, a wonderful great aunt who passed away well, 10 years now, at least, longer than that. She's a dear old lady. She told me she remembers when Lancaster Conference in the 50s and 60s would send song leaders around, and they would come to the churches, and they would spend, I'm pretty sure she told me a week, but I'll say a weekend to be on the safe side. And all they would do is get together and sing as a congregation, and this circuit-riding song leader would come and teach them new music. When has that happened in any churches that you know of? Can, does anyone know? You, have, you ever heard of that? I never have. There's a space where you could have opportunities to, to learn some things. I think Lancaster Conference at that point cared about their a cappella singing. It was important to them. And so they wanted to encourage that uh, in their churches. Now, if we're going to do some training, though, where do we get the tools? Where do... Where do the tools come from to teach our children about singing? Where do the tools come to teach our congregations about singing? Can I go to the, to the Southern Gospel world and find tools that are going to help me teach my children how to sing well? How about the bluegrass world? Can you go to, to them and they'll teach you how to sing a hymn well? Uh, not passing judgment. I'm, I'm make, just endeavoring to make a point. Um, or you go to the contemporary world where they're used to using that microphone right against their lips and they create a, a sound that way. Do, is that where we find tools to teach our children? No, it's not. There, there isn't any. There's no tools there that are going to benefit a cappella singing. So where is it? Well, it takes us to a discussion of choral music. What, what about choral music? Well, I would like to make a distinction between a choral style versus choral music itself. Where did choral music come from? Well, the people in the Old Testament sang in choirs. The Christian church in, in general, and I'm including the Catholics and everything, there was choirs that was part of Christendom ever since uh, probably three or 400 B.C. or A.D., now, I understand that that's been used and abused and misused, etc. 
but the roots of choral music are in the church. Okay? They just are. You can't disconnect choral music from the sacred. You can go to Harvard or Yale, the most liberal college in, in the United States, and if you take their choral program, you will be singing a lot of sacred music because you can't disconnect the sacred from choral. Last night we were talking about a whole pile of music that its roots were in the world. That's where it came from. Choral music's roots are in the church. Now, one of the things that a choral style, what I mean by that is, number one, a respect for the composer and the way the music's written. The bluegrass world, the southern gospel world, the contemporary world, uh, I, I, I remember in the pursuit of the Southern Gospel world, getting songbooks, Southern Gospel songbooks, and then trying to mesh the notes with what I actually knew from the song. Oh my, those those singers did—they didn't follow that music. It was, it was oftentimes vastly different. And it's supposed to be the same song. There was no—they were disconnected from what the composer had written, because the focus there is the performance versus the composer. Um, John and Charles Wesley published a book in the 1600s, um, no, 1700s. And at the front of that book, they wrote a very, had a couple paragraphs, very, very strong, saying, listen, if you're going to sing our music, you need to sing it the way we wrote it. And if you're not going to sing it the way we wrote it, don't sing it. It was really strong. Why? Because they they wrote their music in such a way that they wanted people to sing it the way they were trying to portray it. And the choral style, the classical training, goes to the composer, the writer, and says, what did he want us? How did he want us to sing this? They respect that. The modern pop world does not. It really doesn't matter who wrote this. It doesn't really matter. We're going to sing it the way we want to sing it. Now, choral music. There's, there's a discussion. There's a ditch on both sides and all of this. Choral music... Perhaps is what we're talking when we're talking about music that's so hard and so difficult we can't understand it, we can't access access it, and so on. That's another whole discussion. But the tools for good congregational singing are right here. They're nowhere else. There is nowhere else to find it because the choral world knows how to do it. They know how to sing. They know how to sing in a way um, that when you go Christmas caroling, you can be heard down the street. It's not this real soft, breathy sound that you can't hardly hear. It's big and tall, and you can hear it. That comes from here. So we can perhaps have a discussion as to how complicated our music should get and so on. And that is another discussion. At school, I try to do some of this, some difficult music, because when the students learn to do something difficult, they can do the simple better, just the way it is. And so we try to do a little bit of difficult as well as simple music that the congregation can very quickly uh, appreciate. I think that's important. In this process, we can't let this divide generations again. That is a a concern. The ditch on this side is there's a strong push for good music these days, and that's great. But if it's going to divide the generations, we need to be very careful with that. There needs to be some teaching and some training involved in that. So the tools, though, come from the choral world. How do we approach this music? How do we sing the vowels and all those things? Song leading. Let's talk a bit about song leading. I'm sorry, I'm I'm pushing my time here. We'll do the best we can. Song leading plays an important role in the worship service. 
And I appreciate Brother Jared's leading here. There's enthusiasm. We as song leaders need to feel the spirit of the song and then take the congregation there. We lead, not them. Right? How many, how many times a song leader does whatever the congregation does? No, you need to be in, we need to be in charge. Hebrews, again, we referenced these verses before. Offering the sacrifice of praise, we need to do it well. We need to spend time thinking about how to sing this song, especially if it's a new song that you're teaching. How are we going to go about teaching this song? Do it decently and in order. Do it heartily unto men. Uh, heartily unto the Lord, not unto men, sorry. Do it well. So how do we do this as song leaders? What are some things to think about? Uh, so this is just some things I've used over the years at school. When we get up front here, sing with a confident, tall sound, a sound that's going to fill the church when you leave. Um, sing to the man across the street so you can be the leader. What I mean by that, that reference is a little story. So if, uh, if there was a, you had a deaf neighbor, he's almost deaf, and he's going to walk out in front of the car, and, um, and you, you're the only one that sees this accident happening, and you want to warn him, would you go, hey, 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 hey. You'd go, Hey! You do something. You, you have within you the ability to make a lot of noise. And you can take that same energy into singing. But if you sing like a little first grader, I love my little first graders, but when you're a high schooler, I don't want you singing like a little first grader. Right? We change to that sound that can fill the room. And we can go do our Christmas caroling, like I said, and be heard down the street. I love Christmas caroling with three or four or five sopranos that can take the house down. That is so much fun. The opposite is true, though. Singing with the group where you can hardly hear the sopranos. Because what do the people know? Your worldly neighbor know what about joy, uh, uh, joy of the World? Do they know the bass line? All they know is the melody. Silent Night, they know the melody. We need sopranos that can be heard down the street. And that comes from learning how to use your voice. Sing the vowels. Articulate the consonants. Not to spend a lot of time there, but consonants don't have any pitch. T doesn't have any pitch. You've got to sing the big sounds in between there. What do you do when you get up front, song leaders? Number one, be enthusiastic. We care when you care. Okay, get excited. Number two, get to the front before you announce the song number. Right? Uh, some, I, I've been in churches where, where the song leader, he's like right here, and he gives you the number. No, come up and smile at us, and then give us the number. Thirdly, finish the song before you go to the next one. Uh, you know, we're, I have seen this, and I, at school, I'll, I'll be gr gracious to my students. That's where they learn to lead singing, but they're, they're almost paging to the next song before the sound has stopped in the room. You know what I mean? Okay. So get, finish the song. End it well. Let's think about it before we relax. Thirdly, give long enough pauses between verses that we can look at you, that we can get a breath, etc. Um by the way, song leaders, if the song is going too slow and you want to speed it up, what's the best way to do it? Um, maybe it's the best way, a good way to do it. Uh, just not start the next verse. And after a while, they're going to go, they're going to look at you. Everybody will look at you because they didn't know what happened. And then you can start the song at the pace you want, the next verse. Look at your audience at the end of the verses and the start of the next verse. Uh, that's a challenge, especially for new song leaders, but know the end of, the, of, the, of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, and so you can go through that whole process without looking at your book once. Now, that's ideal. But again, it's this idea of connecting. Uh, as preachers, we're supposed to look at people, right? There's eye contact. That's part of communication. Same thing with song leaders. You need to look at people uh, and connect with them. 
What about picking songs? Pick a song that fits the lesson or the sermon. Um, pick a familiar song for an invitation. I remember hearing a preacher who was a passionate evangel- evangel- evangelistic preacher. He could really preach. And he said, I, had, I was preaching and it felt like the spirit was there. And I asked for an invitation song and the man picked a song that nobody knew. Or hardly anybody knew. You know what happened? If I'm under conviction, what do I do? I can start focusing on that song because I don't know it. Okay? And I can start thinking about the notes instead of thinking about what I just heard. Plus, everyone's struggling, and so the focus moves from this, this powerful call to God to uh, trying to chug our way through this song. Please, pick something that everybody knows. Because if you know it, you can't push down that convicting power. Sing just as I am every time. I don't care. Sing something you know for an invitation. When leading a new song, make sure you know it well. Make sure it's a time of learning. It's frustrating when a song leader gets up and starts what he knows is a new song, and, and, and you're not sure if he thinks you know it or not. You're not. Make this a time of learning. Get up front and say, here, uh, this is a new song. Let's do this this Sunday. We're going to learn the melody, what, whatever. Make it a time of learning. Can the song leader uh, say anything? Can the, is it all right for the song leader to speak into uh, the worship? I think so. Take your books to 812. And, and uh, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I think this is probably one of the worst songs for this that I know of. I don't know how you sing this one here. He leadeth me, O blessed thought. Very familiar hymn. There's no bird's eyes anywhere on here, but almost all congregations do this different. So some congregations will stop at the end of every line. Some congregations never stop. Some congregations stop at the end of the verse like they pause the rhythm, uh, etc. So if I get up front and I start leading this song and I'm, new, I'm, a new, I'm a visiting song leader and I get to the end of the verse and I'm used to keeping going right on through to the second line or the first line and I, I'm ready to go into the second line, you're used to pausing. You pause and I keep right on trucking. Oh, okay. So then I back up and catch up with you or you catch up with me. Um, you catch up with me in that case. We get to the end of the second line and maybe the opposite is true. So, uh, what did I say first? So, um, you're, you're going to keep on going, and I'm going to pause. So, there's a debacle there as well. Now, what happens at the second verse? I'm going to try to do what you're going to do, and you're going to try to do what I did. Right? Absolutely. And there's no worship going on, because we're trying to figure out what's happening. It's better for me as a song leader to just simply get up and say, Here, we're going to have a fermata. We're going we're to pause at the end of this and the end of this. Watch me, or whatever, and then we'll keep going. Worship can then be established because you took the initiative to tell your congregation how you're going to sing it. So yes, um, as, as song leaders, you have, I think, a responsibility to communicate well with your congregation uh, when, you're, when you're singing one that may have some different views on it. Now, we are going to do some singing, but one more screen. If you decide that there's something in your music library that needs to go... Um, the principle of replacement is extremely important. Human nature is just simply this. Uh, if I decide I'm not going to eat uh, Krispy Kreme donuts for two months, I have to replace it with something else. Or I'm going to go back to Krispy Kreme donuts in two days, right? You're going to, you've got, human nature is that you must replace it with something. So the same thing is true. If there's some music that, you know, I really don't think this is appropriate. I need to change it. You need to go somewhere where you can find some. 
And Majesty Music and, and uh, South Carolina is a good place. Now, they are Baptists, so a lot of it, there's very little acapella, which really is really a shame. They did have some acapella recordings years ago that they discontinued, but it's a lot of classically approached music. There's a lot of good music there. This is a um, fellow here in Grantville, Pennsylvania. I used to sell music. I sold it to him three years ago. So this is his information. Um, and he has a lot of choral music, uh, some classical music, a lot of children's things, a lot of quartet music, family music, etc. All in one place. So if you're looking for music to replace something that you feel is inappropriate for you, here's a good place to go. Um, and, uh, yeah, and go from there. Now, the, with the advent of the Internet and so on, there's a lot of options. But again, are we, are we thinking, are we analyzing when we have all this stuff so quickly uh, in front of us? This is my email address if you want to email me for any reason whatsoever. I'm not here to sell you a product or whatever, uh, but I just wanted to give that information here. But if you want to email me, if you have questions or whatever, um, go ahead and there's my information. One thing that I hear sometimes is that, well, I, I was listening to this harder music, and, and this, this acapella stuff doesn't do anything for me. You know why? It can't. Because it doesn't feed the flesh like this other music did. It can't. It's not going to do what... If, you, if you're used to listening to hard rhythmic music, and then you move to some good hymn recordings, that's not going to do for you what that other stuff did, because it can't. But when we're... When we're called towards following God closer and we're moving towards something that's better, can I say, or, or uh, more godly, God will bless you in that. It'll take a while, but it will get to, I can guarantee you, if you're honest, and you stick to it, you will get to a point where what we were listening to this morning is more of a blessing than the other. But it doesn't feed the flesh anymore because it can't. Okay, let's do a little singing. I know it's time to close, but let's do just a little bit. Um, and we're going to talk about that choral style a little bit. Um, so bear with me. Let's go to um, 629. This is Just As I Am. Now, the time to work on Just As I Am is not when we're having an invitation. But we're not having an invitation. So let's look at this song. 629. This is a tremendous piece of music. We sing it so often that I think we miss it. This is beautiful. The text is amazing, and the music is as well. A couple things. This is not written in 4-4 time. This is not, just as I am without... That's not what this is. This is 6-4 timing, which is a ocean wave kind of feel. Okay, so, just as I am without... Much, completely different feel to that when you sing it with the way the composer wrote it. Another thing, basses, no cheating down here. You're up with the tenors. There's a reason for that. If you, if you bass can come up and hit the same note as a tenor and hit it lightly like a tenor, it lets that chord kind of hang very softly right there. But if you just go right down to the low so, it, it loses that feel. Again, the composer put that there for a reason. He wanted it that way. So let's sing it that way. Um, feel where the text goes. One of the principles, one of the choral style principles is thinking about the whole phrase. So uh, let the music take you 
um, and that thou bids me come to thee. And, th and that's going to rise and get loud. And then we're softening up again to, I come, I come. Last verse. Um, now to be thine, yea, thine alone. It's just powerful. And the music takes you right through that whole phrase if we follow. Okay, so let's sing a verse of this. So feel that dotted. It's not a plod, 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 plod. Just as I am without one. So all of those are dotted, but here it's not. But the rest of these have that, that feel um, that keeps us away from that bop, 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 bop sound. Okay, verse 1. No end. Just as I am. singing vowels, um, think about a nice open sound when you're singing all of these vowels. Um, you can't sing the I, you, you can't sing the T's, there's nothing there, so we hit those consonants real quickly as we go right into the, into the vowels. Okay, um, verse 3. No, just as I Uh, maybe some high tenors, some ladies there. And Joseph is A song like that well reflected thinking about that okay um let's go to one more i wanted to do more but i am sorry it's like 234 this is the story of the apostle or the disciples with jesus on the deep and the storm comes and jesus says peace 
you still. A couple elements. There's a lot of, of great music here. It's a minor to start with. Bass, you get to start the raging there, right? That's what your job is. Fierce raging the, temper, the, uh, the tempest. And that's, that's bass's line the whole way through that. And you come right up real high there on deep. You, you feel, that, feel that whole phrase uh, taking us to that point. And it's these anxious servants. But here's Jesus falling asleep. And then they wake him up. And so on and so forth. It's, it's just a great, it's a great text. And it's a tremendous, uh, a tremendous song. So we want to sing this last line, especially the calm and still. Exactly it's that way. Calm and still. Why don't we stand? These four verses need to, let's just sing all four and then I will close. Okay, bases, we need our law there to start out. Oh, sorry. No la do mi and fierce. So we need some fierceness in it. And fierce rage the tempest o'er the sea. carry through deep. Notice there's no comma after deep. So we're going to take a break after hushed because of the semicolon and we're going to hush it. Okay. And then the angry deep sank and we'll go right through that one. Sank like a little child to sleep. So just feel where that the music takes us exactly where we want to go if we feel that. And out of the wild the wild
hope that's what you're feeling in your heart this morning. Thank you very much. Oh, you have time for one more. Uh, shoo, um, that was going to be the. Uh, let's go to number two. Very, very familiar one. And uh, come now, Almighty King. Now, what I want to do with this is Brandon Mullet introduced this a few years ago at a teacher's thing, and he said this song is supposed to be meant. It's supposed to be sung probably twice as fast as we usually sing it. So let's see if we can do that. Uh, and it actually did. I felt like it added something to it. So we're going to fly, okay? Unless maybe you're used to singing this so fast. I don't know. But it's easy to get a little plot. Number two, let's just try to sing it about twice as fast as you're used to singing it, okay? Come thou. But try to keep the pace there. And come hold. Turn the time back to our brother. Thank you, Sheldon, for challenging us and inspiring us last night 